the last RS Thomas Festival we could have in person, uh, Rowan, me and somebody else on this panel being asked questions, and um, somebody, uh, somebody said, what was RS Thomas like as a preacher? And everybody went, ooh, good question. <laughs> and uh, uh, Rowan said, well, I'm, you know, Rowan, his beard. Uh, he said, well, um, I actually never heard him, so I, I can't answer that question. <laughs> and uh, all of a sudden, a man at the back said, oh, Elsie here was in his congregation. <laughs> and... Um, this was Elsie's moment. Everybody looked at Elsie. And Rowan continued and said, um, you were in R.S. Thomas's congregation? And she said, oh, yes. And you heard him preach? Yes. Every Sunday. And what was he like? And she said, oh, dire. <laughs> I can't tell you how we all felt better. <laughs> anyway, let's. What he wasn't dire at is writing poems. Here's his folk tale. Prayers like gravel flung at the sky's window, hoping to attract the loved one's attention but without visible plaques to let down for the believer to climb up. To what purpose open that far casement? I would have refrained long since, but that peering once through my locked fingers, I thought that I detected the movement of a curtain. I'm going to be asking whether you're preaching might be helping for people just the movement of a curtain and how we're going to be doing that. But of course, it's all very well speaking romantically about preaching. We know the reality, uh, all those endless jokes about the rigor mortis of people who are in the pulpit, uh, that's been part of British culture for a long time, you know, the bland leading the bland, the vicar, you know, the vicar trying to be trendily informal in a sort of buttock-clenchingly embarrassing way. Um, there's that wonderful play by Alan Bennett, who has a really trendy vicar in it, saying, call me Dick, because that's the sort of vicar I am. <laughs> that's why I didn't really want this recorded. <laughs> but all the comedy sketches you can think of, from Ronnie Barker to Rowan Atkinson, you know, all their... Giving their sermons. Um, so it's not too surprising that research shows that in the top three things of those who do go to church, what they say they want from their church going, uh, in the top three always is a good sermon. That's what they want. <coughs> However, in the same research that was done, also in the top three things that always disappoint churchgoers is the sermon. <laughs> a little, little problem going on here. Uh, high expectations uh, and uh, not always met. Now those who preach, of course, know this. This isn't news. They don't need to do research. We know this. 
In fact, we probably bore ourselves quite frequently. Uh, and that's why we come to conferences like this, to see if we can revitalise ourselves a bit. Um, and we need to think through lots of very difficult questions about scholarship of the texts that we're looking at, honesty, uh, being alert to who we're <coughs> preaching to, you know, what we would call the hermeneutic of the congregation. You know, just who is out there. If I just speak like I'm a you know, Cambridge Don, white, middle class, all that, you know, are people going to resonate with that way of speaking? Probably not. So am I adapting my language in order to help people hear? Uh, all those sort of questions. How's my body looking? Have you ever been videoed recently to see what you're doing when you're off on one of your tirades? Uh, just, you know, what's the body language up to? Um, what's your self-scrutiny like about your comfort zones as a preacher? You know, all the subjects that you won't go anywhere near. Um, what's your length like, your style, your variety? Uh, do you still have it in you to be a little surprising, to try something new? How can I make my sermon an event and not just a text or a radio broadcast? Uh, all this is really exhausting stuff. Uh, but it's also, I hope, it's exciting too, because if, like me, um, I discover what I believe on my way to the pulpit, so theology for me is what's happening on the way to the pulpit. That it's sort of when I sit down to write my sermon, I'm sort of catching up with my belief. It's an exciting thing to do. However, um, there are enemies in this project, and they are cloaks. You know, don't cloak your honesty. Cloak it up with something. Cliche, as we've heard. You know, there was a war against cliché going on from the pulpit. And claptrap, frankly. <laughs> Stuff that we've just learned, that we just peddle out. It's not doing much in me, and it's certainly not doing much in you. But I have eight minutes to go. <laughs> so I'm going to have more claptrap. So when John Donne, that great uh, poet and uh, eventually Dean of St. Paul's, and if you like John Donne, there's a nice programme on later today. Uh, with, oh, I think I'm in it. Uh, <laughs> on, I think I am. Um, Radio 4, 11.30pm 11, tonight. It really is putting it on in case you can't sleep. Um, but we're looking in that programme, and you can get it on the sound, uh, about the faith of John Donne, rather than just his poetry. But one of the things John Donne said as a preacher, and he was a fantastic preacher, although his, poem, his uh, sermons were usually about 50 minutes long. Try that one out on Sunday. Uh, he said, it's not the wit of a preacher that matters. It's not the eloquence of a preacher that matters. It's their nearness. How near does my humanity feel to my listeners? And if there's that connection, you can carry on. So we are struggling now. If we take that idea as being not a bad one, how near is my language to the people who are listening? And what I've been trying to do this morning is to show you how other people in their ways, as poets, try to find a language that feels near 
so that you can end up talking about it and discovering things and, and so on. How do we do that? Um, so um, that's what I want to talk about in this session. I count it as one of the um, privileges of, of my life, actually, that for the last 18 months of his life, I befriended the actor and comedian Kenneth Williams. You can probably tell. <laughs> uh, rather contagious sense of double entendre. Um, uh, if you know Kenneth Williams, you'll picture him instantly, probably in one of those carry-on films, such as Carry On Cleo, where he played Caesar, if you remember. You'll remember the scene where he comes back from conquering to his annoyed wife Calpurnia, played by Joan Sims, and tries to please her by offering her gifts he's brought back from his latest expeditions. Look, dear, he says, I've brought you cheeses from Holland. I've got Dutch cheeses, she says. I've brought you onions from Spain. I've got Spanish onions, she says. And I brought you precious stones from Gaul. <laughs> I've got Gaul stones and all, she says. And then, of course, later, Kenneth Williams is running down the corridors from the fateful dagger, crying, infamy, infamy, they've all got it, infamy. So uh, the thing about Kenneth Williams was he was an enormous mass of contradictions. He was a mixture of the past's bruising. Uh, he had a very inquiring intelligence. He was uh, lonely, solitary. He was outrageous. Uh, he was a man who used that very loud, unmistakable voice and then went back to his silent flat. If I had to sum him up and... Um, I did have to preach once uh, about him uh, in a series. <laughs> Strange. Uh, I, I said this. Um, he was desperate to be looked at and terrified of being seen. Well, then I thought, oh, that's clever. And I thought, no, it's only clever because that's me <laughs> as a preacher, quite often, in my role. Desperate to be looked at. You know, with all my churchy clobber on, I've climbed up into this enormous box or probably today clinging to that sort of posh-looking deck chair they call a lectern. <laughs> and then I'm a bit scared of being seen. Uh, so my language, this is where this is going, my language becomes camouflaged, self-censoring, the master of the understatement. I become as cautious as Caiaphas. And I'm probably worried as I stand there that, you know, if I really said what I wanted to say, uh, I might touch a few nerves and it might cause a few problems. Um, so, yes, it was true about Kenneth Williams, but I also think it's true about me quite often as I stand in places like this or in churches. And um, therefore it's about the integrity of the preacher, it seems to me. So you don't want to adopt a language that's going to be fake. You want a language that is authentic. So I come back to that shepherd idea of holding on to the staff, rooted so that you are authentic enough to be trusted. Because it's an enormous privilege to stand up here and waffle away 
expecting people to listen when they've got busy lives. So how authentic am I being and how authentic is my language? And is it near to them? Is it near? Those, it seems to me, are really important questions that nobody ever, ever raised with me in my training to be ordained. Never. Um, we looked at, you know, general, you know, the three rules of preaching. Attract them, inform them, move them. Right? That's, what, that's, that's what we were taught to do. Attract them, do a bit of cabaret. Then tell them a bit about the Christian faith and then remind them that they've got a will and they can do something. Well, it's not a bad model, but, you know, after 35 years, that can get a bit dull. So uh, my language can get a bit distant, it seems to me, uh, and I'm asking how we revitalise that nearness and the authenticity of language. Now, when you, when you study, again, in my case, when I was studying to be ordained or when you're uh, training... In your own fields, uh, Jesus comes up quite a lot, doesn't he? And you study his teaching. His teaching quite often. Have you ever studied his preaching? Has anybody ever mentioned Jesus' preaching to you? Never had to me. There's only one book I've ever come across Jesus' preaching, not his teaching. Uh, and that's by a man called Bill Brosend, who's uh, an American. Um, and he has... Uh, studied what we can tell from Jesus' preaching style, and he says these things. Now, I'm telling you this because, again, it will kick in. First of all, he says, Jesus' preaching seems to be dialogical. That is, he preached always in responses to challenges, to questions, to traditions. Wait a minute, it says this, what do you say? And he would, he would reply. So his preaching seems to be in response, in conversation to what's in the air or what's being thrown at him. So there's a, a dialogical aspect. So someone comes up to him and asks him something. One of the religious types has a snipe at him with a, a tradition issue or um, uh, they're trying to show him up in some way, to catch him out. And he engages with the inquirer or with the puzzled disciple, or with the provocative. He engages with the tradition, the culture, and the empire that he's in, and he preaches in response, in dialogue. <clears throat> then Bill Brosend argues that his preaching was proclamatory, so he makes bold and authoritative statements in this dialogical. Uh, he's no blushing violet at times. He begins Mark's Gospel preaching and proclaiming, we're told. People say that he speaks with authority. He often proclaims with irony uh, and often very direct. Be perfect, he says. Beware of the Pharisees. Beware of hypocrisy. Today this is fulfilled. This has, a, this has an authoritative ring to it. So he's not, you know like my, a bishop in the 1980s being interviewed. Uh, I won't name him. I'll do the voice instead. Uh, and the interviewer says, what do you think about this deeply moral issue? And the bishop went, well, on the one hand, I think, 
And on the other hand, of course, <laughs> and the interviewer, exasperated, said, Bishop, what would you do if you had no hands? <laughs> <laughs> Bill Brosing then says, the other thing is about Jesus' preaching, it's very, very occasionally self-referential. Um, not much in the synoptic tradition at all. He tends to want not to be known. He resists flattery. Uh, he's itinerant so that recognition of him doesn't become static uh, or some base of a personality worship group. Um, and he's very aware of the messages that can be unknowingly transmitted by self-reference. So I once was in a church on uh, on a trip when I when I lived abroad. I came back to England. And I went to a church, and um, the vicar and we've all done this. You know, all preachers have done this. They've just come from holiday, and then that time to write a sermon. So they'll preach about their holiday. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> oh yeah, you've done it. And uh, and he said. Uh, my wife and I have just returned from uh, two weeks, fantastic holiday in the Caribbean, and it was just such wonderful and all that. And of course, most of the people sitting in the congregation couldn't afford to go to the Caribbean. So they're thinking, what the heck? How much are we paying this? <laughs> and, and they did not feel near with that one opening gambit, which was all done in innocency, self-referential but alienating straight away. So Jesus uh, is rarely self-referring in his preaching, it seems. And lastly, Bill Brinson says, he was, and I've used this phrase of his already, persistently figurative. He made stuff up, as I put it. He polishes his metaphors, his hyperbole, his parable, his allegory, his rhetorical devices. So he not only, and this is you know, what we're trying to do hopefully, he's not only preaching the gospel, he wants it to be heard. Those are two different things, by the way. <laughs> you can preach as much as you like, but are you getting it heard? So Jesus was a verbal artist, if you like. He was acrobatic with his language, and he puzzled and he delighted in equal measure. So yes, they did run after him and said, that was great. What was it about? Uh, and there again, he enters into his dialogical relationship, building on, on you know, a step at a time as people enter into this invitational style of preaching with story. So if that's you know, a model that we take seriously from Christ you know what are we then beginning to learn in our own preaching um, it's a fact that many congregations and preachers often prefer civility <coughs> to honesty they would prefer it if I kept honesty a bit at bay and so preachers who dare to risk preaching uh, the gospel often feel foolish because views can be pretty hardened out there and serious listening isn't really going on they're just sort of expecting you to be on autopilot and so are they not much is happening here 
Um, and uh, Kierkegaard is a great, I don't know how many of you study him, but <clears throat> he has wonderful images of, um, of a, a preacher like a, a big fat goose <laughs> flapping his wings, telling all these geese in the congregation that they've got wings, they should fly. And they all go, mm, they all waddle out. <laughs> and no one ever takes off. And they all waddle back next Sunday. And there he is again. You have wings to fly. And then they waddle back home. And he says, this inaction just continues. Forever and ever, amen. The language isn't near, and it certainly doesn't have consequences. Um, and of course, we can feel threatened, it seems, because the passion in congregations to keep things as they are is very strong, both in communities and in human hearts. Uh, yes, you can quote me here. Sin is a surprisingly conservative thing. It's not open to the Spirit of God. So it's not always the fact that loyalty to the past is a Christian virtue. Loyalty to the future is. So beware of that immovability. It's not always of God. But we can also, as we're trying to find this language that has consequences and is authentic and is near, that we can start feeling pretty vulnerable as we are exposed to our own world of imperfections and faults and insecurities and inabilities with words. Uh, and let's face it, also our hypocrisy as we are all, every Sunday, talking about things we don't live up to. So no wonder, after all that, you know, the mother whale gave her baby whale advice that is heeded by everyone in this room. Beware, my dear, she said, it's when you're spouting that you're most likely to get harpooned. <laughs> The other thing that's going on quite often, um, and it'd be interesting to know if it was the case here, but I think with clergy, it's quite often the case, that uh, clergy are often introverts, but in an extrovert job. So they find the extrovert role that is placed upon them really tiring, and they need to top up, and it gets worse as time goes on, actually. Uh, and you need to pick up the pieces for yourself. <laughs> There's a cost to it. There's a cost to it. Um, but what I am really talking about, I suppose, is the preacher's courage at the end of the day. The preacher's courage. And I'm wondering whether that's a word that we sort of conveniently don't face when we're beginning writing our sermon. Um, courage... It's not the same thing as being without fear, but it's just doing it anyway. <laughs> um, and although I'm very drawn to that lovely image of evangelism of Gandhi, Gandhi said, he talked about the evangelism of the rose. Have you heard that? It's not what we say that draws people, but who we are. So the rose is, the rose is not on any box burbling away at you. It just is. And you're drawn to it just by what it is, its beauty. And he said, actually, the Christian community should be like that. So, you know, 
they will listen, but actually it's what you are that might draw people in. I, I believe that, but I also believe in what I called earlier the sacramentality of language. <clears throat> and I think we should spend much more time preparing our words in worship because words can achieve amazing things. They can be life-changing. You know that. You've, you've had words in your own life that have changed things, perspectives, life-opening moments when words arrive by way of the heart. Um, it's that book that I gave that title came very much out of this belief of mine that, you know, frankly, at the moment, if you're struggling to think about what you can preach about, uh, if the Sunday slot is a slog, frankly, you're snoring. You're asleep. <laughs> Never before have we been, in recent times, in more need of a language that exposes and explores and examines, that is dialogical and authoritative and close. Now, that is a big, that's a big, tall order, I know, I know, I know. But we've got to be aspirational. That has to be what we're trying to do as preachers. And Bill Brosund, and I do commend this book to you, it's simply called The Preaching of Jesus. He says that for us, as preachers, we have one question as we settle down to, you know, when you've, you've run out of distractions. <laughs> and it, I mean, now we've got to write the sermon. What, what, what does the Holy Spirit want to say to these people in this place at this time through these texts? And how am I going to help? It's quite a good question. Uh, Walter Brueggemann, who's been quoted already today, says we should be audacious as preachers because we're daring to break silence. And just as the bread of the Eucharist makes you more hungry for God, so should our words be broken in order to deepen people's longing for God, to show, if you like, the famine of our land and the hope of God's horizon. So your words are there not to be claptrap, not to be cloaked, not to be hidden, but are there in some way to help people have their faith, their search deepened. So I always think that the preacher is not trying to resolve the mystery of God, but deepen the mystery of God. How might it be that you don't have to answer all their questions? You're there to help them dive deeper. And that, of course, is what the poet does. The poet's not analysing something writing a paragraph of helpful analytical notes, but just writes this poem, which people then dive into a bit, and they splash around a bit, like you were earlier. I heard you. I wish I'd actually recorded. If you could hear your conversation over those two... That was you splashing around in this poem. And it was doing its work as it, as it can. And that's when somebody has spent their energy trying to get the words right. Um, and, and I know I don't do that as I ought to do as a preacher. I know that. 
And that's why I come and talk to you and tell you should do it. <laughs> um, Wallace Stevens, who's a, an American, or was an American poet, once said, we ought to like poetry the way children like the snow. Now, I don't know quite what he meant by that, but I've always had this image. When I was a boy in, just outside Newport, um, I remember we used to have snowfalls and I pulled back the curtains and the landscape that I thought I knew out my window completely gone, completely changed. And I'd get you know, quickly dressed and I'd run out and I'd see the, my own breath in the air because it's so cold. And you had that sort of warm chill of the snow. And then I had to work out, you know, how I was going to get to the gate because there's no path anymore. So you have to work out which journey is worth it. Or not. Now all that, it seems to me, is really what a poem is doing. It's reimagining your landscape and teasing you into it. What would life be like if? And I think, again, this is what preachers are doing. It's called the kingdom of God. We are presenting this reimagined landscape that we believe is God's reality and asking people to come into it. Uh, and that's going to mean you know, you getting that curtain twitching <laughs> for people. Um, and to do that you're going to need more than a status quo language. You're going to need more than the dull. You're going to need more than this is the news. So what can you do? Because I, I say, well, this is all right as theory, but, you know, wh where do we go from here? And so I've jotted down one or two ideas. Um, first of all, relax about whether you need three simple points. <laughs> or, as was once heard in Oxford... As one preacher said, and eighteenthly, <laughs> do you need three simple points? Do you need one clear message? Did Jesus have one clear message every time he taught, preached? Do you need 15 well honed conclusions for everyone to take home and discuss over a Sunday roast? No, you really don't. The preacher, Jesus-like, could preach of the mystery of God by a language that helps deepen talk of it, allowing threads to trail, allowing some thoughts to meander, some finalities to be kept a bit out of reach. You can't pin this down too easily. Um, disturbing us into truth rather than congratulating myself that I have it. <laughs> this is a preaching more as, as a sort of teasing exercise. Um, and it's one I think that, you know, you don't have to do this every Sunday, but you could try it. What would it be like to, if I can put it this way, not have a sermon like a river that's going 
you know, maybe meandering a bit. Meanders, it's running in a straight logical line. You know, I've got a beginning and a middle and an end, and it's just going to run its course. <laughs> and whether you like it or not, that's the course we're going on. Right. That's a river sermon. Or could I preach a fountain sermon, which is not meandering in that sense, but it's something that people can just draw from. They could, and it, they don't have to follow the whole ten minute on, but there will be riches enough in it that people can just, in their own space, in their own time, in their own way, draw from and take home with them, because that's what poems do. Of course, they they are fountains, not rivers. So you don't have one sentence running like a a, a river. You have this poem that's more fountain-like. <clears throat> now, I'm just asking, what, what would it be like if you occasionally preached a sermon like that instead? Um, it's going to need courage, and it's, you're going to be out of your comfort zone, probably, but it might have its worth. It might have its worth. I think meaning can be defined. It can be preached without having to define it. You, know, you can still have meaning. You're not taking the meaning away. You're just calling it story, perhaps. As I said, that's what stories do. They're communicating meaning. Uh, and I, I think, you know, think too of, of the painting in a gallery that we, while we're struggling to understand it, somewhere we know that that picture understands us. So if you say, what does this picture mean? And you go, oh, well, uh, but you're still looking at it because you know that there's something about that painting that understands something of you. And that relationship of me looking at the painting and the painting looking at me has great worth. And often we don't want to move away from it too quickly. What about that adventure in the air being a model for preaching? I, I don't think there's much of it, but I think it can be pretty profound when it happens. So, this means, why don't you, one Sunday, whenever you preach, make up a story, write a story. Don't write, you know, beginning, middle, and end. So try out a story. When I was teaching some ordinance at uh, Westcott uh, House, uh, I, I, I said this to them, and, and one decided to do it. And he wrote a story for a Good Friday sermon as if he was uh, one of the thieves on the other cross next to Jesus. And he, he wrote it in, in the first person narrative that he, so he was speaking to us. He'd never written anything like this before. Um, it was completely new, didn't know. How, he was really nervous reading it out because he thought it was a bit crap. And everybody in that class was hugely moved by it. Um, because we just had this near, authentic narrative that he'd never done before. Um, so, you could try that. One thing you should do, I think, is when you read your uh, sermon, which I hope you do before you preach it, <laughs> I also hope you probably strike out about at least one-fifth of it <laughs> the night before, because we usually go on far too long. Uh, but strike out the word, the words that are predictable. 
the words that are saggy, the words that are dead in the water. We've got a lot of these words. We just use them because we think church people use them. But actually, people don't know what they mean. <laughs> they don't. And if you're going to use the word like, you know, I'd like to just preach today on the atonement. A lot of people don't know what that word means. They might have seen a film called it. <laughs> and, you know, so if you're going to use it, if I were you, I'd try and help people into the word, in a way. Now, yes, you could talk about at one month or whatever, whatever way you want to do it. But I don't just assume that people understand our tribal language. And if you haven't got time to help people, you know, strike it out and find a different way of talking about the same reality. Dare to use words in different relationships. How about listening to the, the words that you're using? We were listening in those poems, weren't we, to the sound of it. And actually the sound of it has an effect. Uh, so listen sometimes to the sound of the words you're using. Um, and beware, always beware of um, using sort of uh, visual aids. That is, is in itself a, a poetic art. In St Paul's Cathedral, I remember one very well-meaning visiting preacher who'd come armed with an orange and started his sermon saying, You see this orange? You can't see an orange in St. Paul's Cathedral. <laughs> no, you can hardly see the preacher. Uh, so think through any sort of uh, visual <laughs> before you start. Um, so listen to your sounds. Be playful. Jesus seems to have been quite a playful preacher. I don't think he was an earnest Puritan. Why did people you know, change their lives because of this person? Because he was a dour, earnest, party poop. No. Because he was near and was authentic. And I think brought out a side to them they wanted to have brought out and never knew how. And there's a playfulness in that too. Dare to listen to your congregations. That's very interesting, is you know, have you listened before you've spoken? We think, well, now I've read the text, and now they, they can hear this, because I've done my homework. Where are they in all this? Before you even looked at those texts, are you in tune with their questions, their realities, their life issues? Listen to your congregation before, else that nearness is never going to happen. This is going to be me as that big fat goose. Um, so dare to leave your listeners expectant, uh, poised. Uh, that, that's a, a good thing to leave people wanting more. That might mean you could be a bit shorter, a bit more concise. Um, as, as we said in one of those poems, we want the next verse. Order made us want the next verse. Well... Maybe you leave them wanting the next son. Um, dare to help people, I think, see that truth is a questioning place. It's not an arrivals lounge. It, it's a space that's generous and, and inquiring and cooperative and 
as these two people here were, were saying earlier, we were both right. Um, it's an angling landscape, uh, and I think if, if you can show in your sermon that, that that's about truth as well as just hammering home some dogma that you feel you're bound to talk about. Actually, I think there's a more invitational attitude to truth that, that is very, dare I say it today, actually required, because you know everybody's got a of you at the moment and they're, they're very ready to put it out on social media before you even you know, get your pen out and we get to your laptop. Uh, one day, why don't you just shock everyone and preach that sermon you never knew you had in you? Uh, breaks all the templates you've ever used and you'll leave everybody sitting there going, where the hell did that come from? <laughs> Um, they may say, as they did to Jesus, can you help? But let the sermon do its work after you've all gone home. They don't have to sit and know exactly what it was all about as they're there. Uh, and that's why I want to focus on the idea of fountain. Not so we endlessly gush mouth music, you know, drowning out interest or ambiguities, but creating this moment from which people can savour something they suddenly realise is vital, the unforeseen becoming the indispensable. So in 1619, the great Lancelot Andrews, Bishop Lancelot Andrews, said in a sermon, and this is worth listening to, he said, our charge is to preach to people not what for the present they would hear, but what in another day they would wish they had heard. Again, our charge is to preach to people not what for the present they would hear, but what in another day they would wish they had heard. So I'm asking, I suppose, that we have a greater courage to take language seriously enough that my heart can speak to yours so that you will be near in my uh, understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But what I hear you say in these final moments before we start having a conversation, what if I just don't feel I'm a poet? <laughs> I'm not great with words. Um, and when I do use them for communication, I'm drawn more to a sort of logical progression or an essay, article type sermon. And actually I think pe people say to me at the end, that was a nice vicar, a nice sermon vicar. They might say it was a nice vicar, actually. <laughs> Not in my experience. Uh, but, uh, you know, they might say, oh, nice sermon. Thank you for your sermon. Um, so is any of this really relevant? Well, poetry comes in many forms. And your own imagination will work out the best forms it might take for you as you reach to connect in the sermon. But like all arts... It's not just going to happen. You need to train. You need to practice. And uh, that's why I think anyone who preaches will be helped by trying to read poetry. Because you will learn from the masters. And I'm not saying you've just got to imitate them, but you will be learning how words can, can move. 
Uh, I try and read a poem a day. Uh, it starts my day, and I find that the distillation it often brings um, often then leads me into prayer um, and into an excitement, actually, uh, at the places that language can take us. And you might find one a day a bit much, so what about one a week? Not consumer reading, which a lot of us have at the moment, you know, flicking through the mag, consumer reading, but creative reading. Um, this needs more time and space, but you listen to the words that are listening to you. That's the sort of relationship. And, and I do think, it, sitting, and I was talking about this over lunch with somebody, Sitting reading a poem can be a bit difficult sometimes, but if everybody's out and you've only got the cat, read it aloud. Go into the kitchen, don't, you know, just say, oh, to hell with it, and read out the poem out loud, and it will have a completely different life, because you'll hear it, not just read it. And that's how poets want you to encounter poems, is by hearing them. So there's... Uh, a way that you might encounter poems a bit differently than just sitting up a corner and reading them as if you were in a library. Say them out loud. Sound and meaning, as I said, are caught up. Welcome the difficulty. Just, just say, hmm, I don't know what that means. That's fine. Just say it. Uh, you may want to go back to it. And it might eventually, as I say, uh, start to make some sort of meaning. But welcome the difficulty. Don't be put off by it. And it's because of these open-ended images of, of poetic forms that their significance is exercised. I mean, that's the point here. It's not just that this is a sort of titillating way of speaking. This actually is how the great religions have always communicated their truths through this poetic form. And T.S. Eliot used to say of his poems that he, he said, the poems I write... Uh, know things that I don't. <laughs> so they always have a life of their own. And you've just got to relish that. So the question about, you know, what did the poet really mean? Not that important. What does it mean to you? Um, the other thing you could try and do is write a poem. If all this reading poetry is, you know, a bit dull and a bit heavy for you, then why not try and write one? Why not write a poem as your next sermon? Read it as a poem. Um, or include one in your sermon. Um, I often do that. Get someone else to read it. Break the sermon up. It causes a, cause a complete confusion as to what's going on. You're preaching away. And all of a sudden somebody gets up over the corner and reads, which you, you've, by the way, you've planned this. Okay? <laughs> a little bit of preparation involved. <laughs> But it will completely throw, and it will have an impact. Hopefully, it will. Depends how the poem is read. Um, or what about, uh, as I said, you know, when you go to worship, you've walked into a poem. Why not help people see that? Why not have a series of sermons on the poems of hymnody? Why not look at some of those great hymns that we just stand there? Well, no, 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 no. Take out the music, look at the words. Do you believe this? <laughs> oh, you do? Oh, is this a good... You know, 
be a very interesting, remind people that their heritage is poetic. Um, and as I say, you don't always have to do all this yourself. You can get other people to help you. Call people back to the poetry of the hymns or to the psalms, to the prophets, to the gospel. Call people back to the truth. And this is what... Um, so if I was ever to build a church, unlikely, but let's just say I did, and I had an altar, you know, to, I don't know, dedicated to St. Desmond Tutu, that's probably what I would set up. What, what would be on the wall behind the altar? I, I would have words, and I, they would be from the poet Les Murray, the Australian. He wrote wonderful poetry. Every book he wrote was dedicated to the glory of God. And Les Murray once says in, in one of his poems, God is in this world as poetry is in the poem. Think about that. I'm still thinking about it. 25 years after first reading it. But God is in this world as poetry is in the poem. A reality just can't quite grasp it. <laughs> A love that's just out of reach. And, and R.S. Thomas's poems, of course, are so often about this reality. Such a fast God, he says, always before us and leaving as we arrive. That's sort of resurrection God. Um, and um, he talks about God being like, you know, I, I put my hand down into the rabbit hole to try and grab him, get this God. Uh, and he's gone, of course. He's, he's not going to be held by me. But it's still warm where he's been. R.S. Thomas, you know, thrives on these images. So if you don't know his work, I do commend uh, Thomas, R.S. Thomas to you. So I'm, I'm suggesting that, that to read poems as we have been, to relish all the things that they bring into the room, allows in you, hopefully as a preacher, a more creative freedom in, in how you are constructing or preaching this meaning of the kingdom of God. Um, sometimes, as Samuel Johnson says, people need to be reminded more often than they need to be instructed. Um, allow your imagination to be moved in more than one direction. Allow poems that you encounter to make you attentive, because that's the other great thing about poems, is that they are helping you in the art of attention, so that you, you, you look and you look again, and you look again at something. So, you know, in that second poem, we were looking at tea leaves, but we looked again, and it was about more than leaves. It was about leaving. It was, as somebody was just saying, it was about dry leaves at the beginning of the poem, and infused leaves at the end, and so on. So look, look, look again. Um, and, and I think that you will... By this language of authenticity and closeness and nearness, um, help people believe that because of our God, ultimately reality is trustworthy. And in this day and age, with so much going against that belief, that will be a wonderful gift to bring to people. Um, so I'm going to end with a little quote of John Donne. Thou art 
a figurative, a metaphorical God, in whose words there is such a height of figures, such voyages, peregrinations to fetch remote and precious things, such curtains of allegories, such high heavens of hyperboles, so harmonious elocutions as all profane authors seem of the seed of the serpent that creeps. We don't want a language that creeps like a snake. We want to be lifted high. We want to be taken to the heights. And then he says, the serpent that creeps, hmm, you have the art of the dove that flies. A lovely image of John Donne for us. I believe that we're made in that God's image. And I hope that we will pray that our words will fly into hearts as well as into heaven, not creep in tired, churchy, sterile, deadening phrasing. There's a very close connection between the word devil and drivel. <laughs> very close. Fly, soar, dive, play, right on the sky to his praise and glory. Let's be lovers of language. Let's be attentive to words and the truths of which they speak. You are the church's poets in residence. You are serious about these little black and white things on this page. They are outward signs of remarkable inner graces. Small markings that can reveal the presence of the holy. Sacramental because they are inexhaustible. So let's just relish this creative fusion. And yeah, maybe our prayer today should be from the devil and all his dreary drivel. Good Lord, deliver us. <laughs> Amen. Amen. So we've got um, about 25 minutes or so, 20 minutes, 25 minutes, um, to deal with any of the thoughts and comments that you've been brewing up or and I do encourage you you know I've, I've asked you to be honest in your preaching be honest with me I if you really don't like anything I've said I'm, I'm going home at the end of this so uh, <laughs> I'm escaping uh, but no I, I'm always keen to hear you know problems or things that you've enjoyed or things that you know what what's gone on today for you uh, is anything going to change I suppose I want to know is anything going to change or we all going to waddle off. <laughs> I love Kierkegaard. Yes? Can you just give us six poets that we could maybe focus on and look for their work? You've mentioned two particularly today, Jim Herbert mm. and R.S. Thomas. Another mm. four? Um, well, try Mary Oliver. Do any of you know Mary Oliver's work? Uh, Mary Oliver has just recently died, Canadian. I find that her work at the moment resonates with a lot of people. A, because it's quite simple language. B, because it's very connected to the natural world of which people are, are quite relishing of at the moment for right reasons. Uh, and also because it's, it just hints at the transcendent without thumping you with it. So Mary Oliver would be one. I would go back to Auden, actually. Um, 
John Donne, somebody was mentioning earlier Thomas Traherne. Um, if you feel adventurous, go to um, Manly Hopkins. Wonderful poems there. Um, I'm just trying to think of one other contemporary that I would... Michael Simmons Roberts is an interesting uh, Catholic poet writing at the moment. Uh, not always easy, um, but uh, and, and not terribly well known, although he's on that programme which you'll all be listening to later. <laughs> that um, he, he's on it as well. Uh, but some of his poems are are very interesting, I think. But but you'd need a little bit of coaching well, with yourself, a bit of patience. Um, and the reason I'm flicking through here is because I think I have... Yes, here's one he's just written. Um, Rehearsal for the Death Scene, it's called. Michael Simmons Roberts. And it's based around that idea in the Gospel. You know when the, the man is who's blind is healed and he says, I see people but they look like trees so it's based on that image if trees could walk like men beautiful boy god I would bear you on my shoulders through this city show you every boulevard and alley, every market stall and park you would tower above the calvacades and rallies peer into penthouse suites and boardrooms Witness to so many acts of cruelty and love, safe among my needles. Then, when you nod, tired in the cold and thickening dark, I would stand on the riverbank as long, slow barges mutter by and sing you to sleep in my many tongues, the bat-high, silvered songs of linden, plain, slow lullabies of quince and meddler from the gardens, long laments of empress foxglove in the windless squares. I would carry you for years until you grow so heavy that they nail you up to keep you here. It is needless because even if my back broke, I would never let you fall. Intriguing poem that is. He's just written it, and uh, it's very much in the tradition of uh, the Anglo-Saxon poem of the tree speaking about Christ. Um, but uh, yes, beautiful boy God. Anyway, he's a he's a committed Catholic. So there, there's a few names. Of course, in my splash of words, I introduce you to twenty-nine poets. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. I'm probably a bit eclectic in what I look at. Yeah. It's probably a bit random. But I love, there is a certain book where there are some poems written by children. Yeah. And they are absolutely amazing. These children are between six and about ten years old. Mm. And they write poems about their little sibling dying at birth basically and things like that and they are so moving um, but the, there is also some prayers in there and I think well how can you argue with a child that says dear God how did you know you were God 
And I'm thinking, you know, these, these things are so simple mm. that we don't look at them, we don't give them credence, and yet sometimes they're like the most beautiful things. Mm. Yes, unless you become as a child, you shall never enter. Yeah, thank you. I, I totally agree with you. And when I've uh, been to schools to do, I sometimes do assemblies about poetry for, for children. They're much better than me, what they come up with about poems. Yeah. Paul, um, like you mentioned in there in your talk, people sometimes say, well, that was a nice sermon, David. <laughs> But I've never been challenged on a sermon. And when you go for coffee afterwards and you're talking, nobody ever talks about the sermon or mentions it. So you never know whether you are actually preaching the sermon that they want to hear, because they don't tell you. Mm. And I mean, how do you go about finding that out? Ask them. Just ask them. <laughs> what was it? Take your wife with you. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Take your wife with you. Um, well, when I was a curate um, many years ago, um, we had a little group once a month that would sit with me from the parish and tell me what they really thought. Oh. And the, the understanding was that nothing would leave the room. So when they went out, they would not say anything critical about it, but they, would, and they were very gracious. But they would tell me about something. And, and they were my little sort of my little sermon group that because they wanted me to learn how to preach as a young priest uh, they were going to help me and uh, they did by their honesty so that's another thing you do is have a little group don't pick, every, don't pick all your mates <laughs> pick someone in it who you know is a very different sort of thinker than you so I'm as you, can t you might have just picked up I'm rather a humanities sort of person so I don't see the wor world like mathematicians and physicists do. But the congregation is going to have them in it. So how can I help them rather than me keep floating off onto, you know, <laughs> Wordsworthian claims? How can I always include something in my sermon that's more practical and objective that they can take away as well? So that's what I mean about the hermeneutic of the congregation, is trying to find your when you're finding the authentic language it has to be of, of yourself but also of us our authentic language so yeah so I think ask ok next time then yeah I stand by the church door as I go out and we expect everybody to say that Feel was an amazing song <laughs> where did that come from hmm Yes. I've had the experience of people complimenting me on something that I haven't said. Yes. <laughs> and it's a really awful thing when somebody comes up to you 20 years later and says, Mark, you once said something in a sermon that I had never forgotten. <laughs> and they say it and you think, I never said that. <laughs> and the thing is, it's a bit like this, you know, so there's a hundred of you here. If I give a, a, a talk, you know, a hundred different talks have been heard and not one of them is the one I'm giving. <laughs> and I think sermons are like that. And that's why I'm thinking we can just, we can relax about that. Just, you know, fill it with, with 
we have to be nourished in order to nourish. There's nothing worse than the, you know, you know when you're empty. It shows. It shows. And of course, <laughs> I discovered as parish priest that, you know, when the shepherd is hungry, they tend to eat the sheep. <laughs> they sort of take it out on them, uh, which is never very good. Uh, but we have to be nourished in order to nourish. That, that's a really important part of this. So I have to be fueled and excited and ready for it in order for it to, to be heard in whatever way they want. So I think what will communicate, if, even if they don't get all your very you know, clever points that you're making and your beautiful insights, is will they feel your enthusiasm, your integrity, I was saying to you last night, well, my bishops are always banging on when I ever go at them about something. They say, well, we are symbols of unity. And I always say, yes, but you could be symbols of integrity. <laughs> That's a good one too. Uh, but I think it's true for preachers. you know. And if they sense that, then you're still near. You're still near. Well, as long as it's something good. Yes, it's when they come out with something you never said. Yeah. You wonder who it was instead of you, don't you? <laughs> yeah. Yes? Uh, I, I think there's something about thinking of ourselves as preachers, as wordsmiths, and, and thank you for today because that's what's struck me, um, in that because we hold, well, I would hope we hold seriously the call to preach because, you know... Um, the, the um, what is it? The stumbling blocks and the stones, and you know, being weighed down if we take anybody the wrong way. So, so there's a there's a pressure, isn't there? I think we probably all feel about standing up and being God's mouthpiece, mm. but which I think can then cause us to lose the playfulness that you seem to be suggesting. Mm. So, so actually, to think of us, and particularly if we've had a bad experience at school or whatever with English and literacy and all of that lot. You know, to perhaps reimagine ourselves as wordsmiths, mm -hmm. as people who are permitted, who actually have a divine call to play with words. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I just want to offer that. Well, Rowan Williams, of course, often says that theology is really the business of, of trying to come up with the least silly thing we can say about God. <laughs> so we are all, at, at the end of the day, trying to find the least silly thing we can say. Um, but that means being attuned to the realities. You know? And that also, and there is a part of realities of us that is playful and needs to, to grow. <laughs> uh, and in order to grow, we need to be challenged and all that. So yes, I, I agree. I mean, that you say wordsmith. I, what The image I like is, you know, you're the poets in residence. Mm. You're resident in, the, in those communities. And, uh, and you're going to be their poet. You, by being a preacher. I like that image, but I would with mine. Um, yeah. Anything else that people have been desperate to say through the day? Oh, yes, sorry, hi. Um, you did say honest, didn't you? Yeah. Not my thing at all. Okay, so sitting here, 
got me with refugee blues completely. Lost me with procedure, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and completely lost me with the last one, which for me is a paragraph that has just been separated onto lines. Wh- which one? Folk tale. Folk tale, oh. Yeah. Okay. Now, that's because, I know I'm making them into folk tales, get that. Okay, so sitting here, you really, really made me excited about this. Okay, mm-hmm. now, I'm very passionate, I'm very passionate about Jesus. I'm very passionate in what I do. Mm-hmm. My question to you is, um, well, it, it's going to be a statement and a question. Um, I really feel that I now, um, I want to go and share the poetry with other people because of your passion. Mm-hmm. Okay? So, in order for me to do that, who isn't passionate mm-hmm. with our congregations or our churches, how, what next? Mm. Good question. It's definitely your passion that has made me want to go on and do something else with it. Mm-hmm. Not your passion. Yeah, and when you are a passionate person, you don't. I mean, for me, stepping out and doing something with poetry in my church is like no way because I haven't got that. Mm. Um, well, the first thing to say is there's no obligation. <laughs> so, <laughs> but but yeah, so you might just say, oh, you know, Oakley's quite good talking about this, but it's not my, it's not for me. And you will find out, hopefully, with God and your prayer life and your church, what is you and what you're going to gift to your community so it may not be this however let's put that aside for a moment and answer your question I would say that the best thing you could do is to get a little group together in your uh, parish um, with some help and it, it could be by writing an email to me or somebody else and just say you know, give me six poems that we could look at over six weeks you aren't going to go and do an enormous amount of homework on it. You might want to just find out who this person was. Uh, and then do what we did here, but with your six people or how many it is. Don't make it too big. And see what happens. And if at the end of it, my passion has all of a sudden starting to do something in you too, hooray. And if not, uh, write back to me and say hopeless <laughs> I'm looking for something else um, we're different pe- you know we are different people I think what I'm just trying to do today is correct what's we sometimes just get into an autopilot about preaching when we're trying to be imaginative about so much else and actually the research shows that people want the sermon to be feeding so that that would be that would be one next step is not to carry it all yourself but to, to have a little group and read poems and see what happens and they could be on you know about things that have something to do with faith mm-hmm. so that it becomes a church poetry group and if they're not poets does that matter well i would say try and get at least one of them who quite likes poetry mm-hmm. so you're not all just sort of drowning together <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah Yeah, lyrics. Good. I think not to take what we've learned today back would be uh, shame. Mm. Real shame. Yeah, real shame. Mm. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, 
I thought I'd just end. Uh, I mentioned Mary Oliver, and actually the last poem on the little... It, this is a funny little poem of hers, but the only reason I'm ending is A, to entice you to look at her work a bit more, but also because we started with a poem about a woman in her elderly years. If you remember uh, Wendy Cope, seems ages ago. And Mary Oliver wrote a poem about her grandmother uh, towards the end of her life too. And I, I just found it rather beautiful but see what you make of it. It's called In Praise of Craziness of a Certain Kind. On cold evenings, my grandmother, with ownership of half her mind, the other half having flown back to Bohemia, spread newspapers over the porch floor, so, she said, the garden ants could crawl beneath as under a blanket, and keep warm. And what shall I wish for, for myself, but being so struck by the lightning of years, to be like her with what is left, that loving. I hope whatever skills we use as preachers, we will all, at the end, be left with that loving. Thank you so much for listening to me today. Thank you.